A shortage of personal protective equipment to protect frontline health workers from the coronavirus pandemic has states across the nation scrambling to find providers and often making hasty orders. In Oklahoma, officials at the State Department of Health have been criticized for some of its PPE orders and a review of purchasing records by the frontier obtained through an open records request provides more details about who the state is doing business with. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder, and on this week's episode of COVID-19 in Oklahoma, I'm joined by my colleague Cassie McClung as we take a closer look at the state's process for securing PPE. We also discuss the state's seven-day average of COVID-19 cases and any trends that might be emerging. This episode was recorded on Sunday, May 17th. Hey, Cassie, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, doing well. Entering a, another week as the state continues to kind of transition towards, I guess we're in phase two of the governor's opening plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was actually in Edmond last week, and in many ways, it didn't seem like there was a pandemic going on. A suburb of Oklahoma City, a lot of restaurants, their parking lots were full, and a lot of hustle and bustle. And then uh, closer to where I live, kind of in the heart of Oklahoma City, there's, you know, most restaurants are still closed, and mm. it, it's still quite not back to normal. I don't know, just it kind of feels like a, a, a tale of, of two cities, depending on, on where you are in Oklahoma. And I'm sure that's that's common across the country right now. Right. So I live in Midtown Tulsa, which is kind of the center of Tulsa. Um, And it's kind of the same that you're seeing in Oklahoma City. There's some businesses that are opening, but, you know, um, phase two allowed bars to open um, as of, I think, midnight on Friday. And I think all but maybe a small handful of bars are staying closed, at least until June. Yeah. We still haven't uh, gone to dine in at a restaurant, have you? I sat on the patio of a restaurant this morning, actually. it was a it was a restaurant downtown Tulsa, and all the staff were wearing masks and gloves, and we just sat out on the patio, and I think we were one of there's like two more people sitting across the patio from us, about 20 feet away. So it was interesting. I couldn't help, even though they were being really careful. I I felt a little guilty going. Yeah. But it was it was it was it was kind of nice to get out again. I have to say. No, definitely. Yeah, we haven't been out yet either, and I kind of I I, I bet that first time there will be some guilt. I don't know. It's just going to, it's yeah. one of the things I, at least for me, and it sounds like for you, it's just going to have to do it and, uh, and see how it feels. You know, we're planning a, a kind of a small family gathering, uh, for my mom's birthday a month from now and kind of wondering, you know, I'm, I'm planning something that I normally would be doing that I feel like, I don't know, just with everything that's going on, I wonder if we're still going to yeah. do it. I don't know. Just making plans, going out to eat. It still feels kind of odd right now, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but I guess holistically, I mean, you know, across the country, we're seeing overall numbers continue to decline. I mean, not rapidly, mm-hmm. but you know, many states, including many of the hotspots like New York and Michigan are trending in the right direction. And that has been the case here in Oklahoma, but we recently saw the seven day average kind of hit a spike. One of the highest seven day averages of new cases that we've seen. Um, kind of walk us through what we've seen in recent days when it comes to the number of new cases and are we still kind of trending the direction state officials said is required for us to, to, to move back to normalcy? Yeah, so I'll kind of go into the numbers first, and then I'll go into where those new cases might be coming from. So before I go into the numbers, I'll kind of explain. So the state and many infectious disease experts, when they're measuring how 
cases are trending, they do it by the seven-day moving average. And that just means they're averaging it over a seven-day period because it kind of shows trends of the situation over time and it de-emphasizes any daily swings you might see. Like, for example, on Sundays and Mondays here in Oklahoma, there's always a lower reported number of cases um, because reporting slows on the weekends. So um, as of Sunday, there were 5,310 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Oklahoma. So with today's numbers included in the seven-day average, the new cases, uh, the average is at 103 now. And that was probably brought down a little bit by Sunday's lower number. Because like, as I mentioned a second ago, um, we'll see lower reporting numbers on Sundays and Mondays. Um, So just for some context, the seven-day average jumped a bit over the last few days. But it was actually higher earlier this month when there were 109 new cases for the moving seven-day average. And it was the highest um, the state has ever seen it in early April with 117.6 new cases on average. So 117.6 is the highest average we've seen. And right now it's at 103. Yeah. And and when you look at a graph and you compare the seven-day average to just the one-day count, I mean, that Mm -hmm. one-day count just goes up and down, up and down. It's really hard to to get any kind of uh, story through that. But that seven-day average kind of looks more at, at a weekly trend. Now, you had you had said that on Thursday, the health department said it expected a spike in reported numbers due to the increased testing at uh, at Seaboard Foods in Texas County. So this uh, pork processing plant and the mm-hmm. Panhandle and Guymon, where there's been, uh, I think, what, over 600 known cases there? Yeah, now there's, I think, nearly 700 known cases there. So about five days ago, there were only, I think... 500 or less known cases in Texas County where that processing plant is. So a lot of the new cases, not all of them, but a lot of the new cases the state has seen has been from that pork processing plant where that big outbreak has been. And I was looking at the numbers this morning because even today um, there were, let me see, 73 new cases um, reported, but more than half of those were from that Texas County plant. So I looked at the numbers this morning and Texas County has the third highest number of cases in the state per capita. Um, No, actually, sorry. The third highest number of cases in the state overall behind Oklahoma and Tulsa counties. And Texas County is not a huge county. And I looked at a per capita and it has the most cases per capita than any other county in the state. So. There's almost 34 known cases there per 1,000 residents. And for context, the second highest is Greer County, and that has 10.6 cases wow. per 1,000 residents. So that's a pretty significant um, gap between the first highest and the second highest. Well, and once again, state officials, the governor has said that what they're really focused on is the hospitalization capacity, mm-hmm. uh, the number of Oklahomans who are in the hospital because of the coronavirus has kind of trended down. It's bounced up and down, but it's, it's trending in the right direction uh, to, for where state officials want that to be. And, you know, they've said, hey, we're going to see swings in the number of just cases, obviously, as we test more people. But mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, if this is going to be kind of the normal, that we are going to see uh, spots where we see a spike. And, you know, then that causes the state number to go up, but it's going to be important to kind of determine where that spike is. So, for example, mm-hmm. 
a, a spike in the panhandle of Oklahoma isn't necessarily alarming for myself in Oklahoma City or you in Tulsa, mm -hmm. but who knows, maybe in a couple of weeks we see a spike at, say, you know, a, a church in a Tulsa suburb. I mean, I think we're going to see these kind of these, these clustered cases and it's going to be important to kind of know that because when mm -hmm. you look at the overall state data, it, it would be easy to think, well, man, we're, it's just exploding everywhere. But we have seen recently that it's that it's specific places, you know, the processing plant. We've seen nursing homes. You've reported mm -hmm. a lot on that. Um, and as things open up more, like I said, churches, uh, you know, youth sports leagues, uh, when schools reopen, if they do in mm -hmm. August and September, uh, I, th I think we could probably maybe expect to see these kind of Isol not isolated, I guess, but these, these outbreaks in, in specific places, at least it seems like what we're seeing so far. Right, definitely. So like you said, looking at the overall state numbers, it might look like, you know, the state's seeing a jump in cases, but context as the state's reopening, context is so important for, you know, where these cases are coming from. So like you said, a lot of these new cases in the past week or so I've been from that processing plant. Um, the state has been in the process of testing all nursing home residents and staff. So I know um, last week the Oklahoma City County Health Department sent out a press release saying, hey, there is a spike in cases in Oklahoma County, but that's only because, um, you know, from nursing home cases going up uh, or more being reported. And not that to say that those cases aren't equally as important, you know, as they would be in general society, but we kind of have to look at those a little bit different, um, you know, just where these cases are popping up, where they might be contained, um, you know, what areas they might be affecting. Yeah. And, and Saturday's numbers from the, the Department of Health showed 180 that were currently hospitalized. And that's significantly mm -hmm. lower than where we were a week, two weeks, four weeks ago. And, and once again, state officials have said they really want to make sure that we have the, the capacity to, you know, accept everyone who needs hospitalization. And that number mm -hmm. is really kind of, I mean, the overall testing number, like we said, it, it could be influenced by an isolated breakout. It could be influenced by just, uh, you know, an increase in testing in certain parts of the state. It's hard to really get a clear picture. It's an important number, but it's hard to get a clear picture on just the overall number. But hospitalizations, mm -hmm. deaths, I mean, that seems like that's really the money numbers, right? Because those are it's harder to kind of, I don't want to say fudge as if like the overall testing number or the overall right. case numbers are being fudged. But I mean, if someone needs to go to the hospital, they're usually going to get it. They're going to go to the hospital. And if someone dies because of the coronavirus, I mean, that's going to be counted. And as we saw last week, maybe when it doesn't need to be uh, with a, <laughs> right. a story on someone who was reported dead that actually wasn't. But for the most part, those numbers are, are fairly accurate on, mm -hmm. on severe cases and, and, and deaths. Right. And that's, you know, kind of an easier metric to kind of measure where the state has, is as far as COVID-19 cases go, because, you know, we know like maybe not everyone who has gotten the virus has gotten tested, but if they're very sick, you know, like you said, they're probably going to go to the hospital. Um, it's it's hard to miss. And those hospitalization numbers include people who have tested positive for the virus already, as well as those who are hospitalized while investigation for the virus. So it even almost broadens the criteria for being included in that data. So I think, um, yeah, like you said, um, the state is really watching deaths and hospitalizations and how they look at how the state's doing and hospitalizations either have been trending downward or they have plateaued and we haven't really seen any spikes in deaths in I think the last week or so. Let me ask you this question. I'm curious as someone who's just immersed in all this, 
and mm -hmm. is, is trying to approach this from a, you know, a nonpartisan, you know, unbiased perspective of just kind of looking at the data, talking to experts and assessing the situation here. Does your does your gut tell you that this is right now, whether or not we see a spike, uh, you know, uh -huh. a repeat in the future? But right now, I mean, does your gut tell you that things are getting better? Because I feel like it's really hard right now as mm -hmm. everything in life right now becomes partisan. I think there are some people who feel like who have taken this thing seriously, rightfully so, in my opinion, but to feel like to give in a little bit to say, hey, things are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like you're now you would be giving some credence to the images of those who are who are protesting and saying that this is a hoax. I mean, that's obviously an extreme. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, what is your what do you feel like kind of in your gut as you look at as you're immersed in all of mm -hmm. this, this data? Yeah. And, you know, that's a hard question, but I think just looking at the data, um, you know, obviously, like we were talking about earlier, we've seen spikes in certain places or outbreaks in certain places. But um, if you're looking at the hospitalization numbers and the numbers of deaths, and I'm going to preface this with saying, you know, any hospitalization from the virus is bad, any death from the virus is tragic. But you know, like the governor and the state's been saying, those numbers are trending downward. So I don't know if I can say that things in Oklahoma are good right now, but I can say it looks like they're trending in the right direction for now. Yeah. And of course, this isn't a black and white issue. There is no, you know, mm -hmm. yes or no answer to, to any of these questions. And I don't mean to imply at all that I think we're in the clear to where we shouldn't take this as serious. Right. I mean, I think we should continue to take this very mm -hmm. seriously if we are headed in the right direction to ensure that we, you know, hopefully, hopefully keep up that momentum. Exactly. Um, it just, like I said, this is not new in our current American experience. Everything becomes politicized and partisan. It just, it, it, and, and that's, there's no exception to the coronavirus. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the president's son was on TV this weekend saying that this was basically a hoax from, from Democrats. So there are some pretty prominent people who are, who are taking extreme positions on this. Yeah. But I just wonder if because of the, partisanship of it it makes some of those of us who believe that this is a, a serious and real crisis it, it makes us a little hesitant to acknowledge that things may be getting better i, I know for me personally yeah I no can, i see I what you're saying no definitely and it, it is interesting to me that it's such a partisan issue because you know you have those prominent figures on tv saying it is a you know it's a hoax but here in oklahoma um you know we had some national News at the beginning from our governor, we had kind of a rocky start, but, you know, we don't see Governor Stitt on TV calling COVID-19 a hoax or making light of it. So, yeah, I, I think I just think it's interesting from a local versus national perspective. And of course, there's people in Oklahoma who do think COVID-19 is a hoax. So yeah. it's, it's, it's gotten very political. Well, and I and I don't want to give too many details on this because it's a story I'm working on, but I've mm -hmm. I've been I've, requesting emails from from many city leaders across across the state big and small cities and towns mm -hmm. to try to get a better sense of kind of how how individual cities uh, responded to the crisis uh, the pandemic yeah. as it came into their communities and and one particular mayor of a, of a medium-sized city early on even when the state was starting to get its first cases was really downplaying it to citizens who yeah. were writing in saying that they were concerned that they felt like the city should take further action uh, you know, this this mayor wasn't, you know, I wouldn't say that he was rude or disrespectful in his response, but really downplayed it and sometimes said, mm -hmm. you know, this is being trumped up by the media. Uh, you know, there are, there are people who are just 
you know, trying to look for a handout during this time from the government and, and this will all pass and nothing will happen. Well, fast forward three weeks later, especially as this community had its own intense outbreak, uh, the mayor's tone was different and was, was yeah. responding to it in a very serious way. Um, so, of course, people who had some opinions on the onset of this, you know, have maybe have come around as, they, as they've seen the evidence firsthand. And mm-hmm. I think the majority of people and polls show this, that the majority of people, both Republicans and Democrats, see this as a serious issue um, right. and it's something to be taken to taken seriously, you know, whether or not everyone believes you should wear a mask and that's become kind of its own political statement. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, and there's been some stories on that, I think is kind of fascinating as well. Yeah. The, the whole mask thing, I feel like in the last couple of weeks, as restrictions have been lifting in States, I feel like it's become a topic that's become a little bit more intense, a little bit more partisan because, um, you know, early on we had people who didn't want to wear masks, but now it's become kind of, almost a hostile um, conversation in some cases. Yeah, yeah. And almost as if you are, like you are projecting a belief with yeah. the, wearing, the wearing of a mask. And, and some people, that's, that's, some people are very sensitive to that, right? You, yeah. you may not be trying to communicate anything and some people t- are, are very sensitive on what they think that you are communicating. Cassie, when I first moved to Oklahoma City, I was using a, a push mower, so a motorless mower, and someone uh-huh. yelled out, for their passing trip pickup truck that I should move back to San Francisco. So, I mean, so even, <laughs> but just even like wow. the simple action of, of a, of a non motorized lawnmower was offensive to somebody who, who I guess took that as a, as a political statement. Anyways, I, that's an that's, extreme example. That's but extreme. Yeah. <laughs> that happened to you. That's, but I that's think there are people who are responding to the wearing a mask and probably to the not to not wearing masks as mm-hmm. as that someone is making a political statement and yeah i just think that complicates the issue and it, it's important to know that and to understand it but i i hope it doesn't confine us to a position even if the data starts to starts to change no no i i definitely agree and i do feel like it kind of you know, it doesn't do this issue any favors, politicizing the mask. And I do think it's, I, I feel like it's really distracting from the bigger picture. You know, not that I'm saying that wearing a mask isn't important, but I feel like it's kind of going off message a little bit. Well, and let me use this opportunity to make a plug, you know, not just for our own publication at, at readfrontier.org, but, you know, other legitimate media sites. I think the coverage in Oklahoma, because that's what I've been reading the most of, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of legitimate sites and publications has been really solid. Where you can, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully, I think our reporting is offering people context. Um, you know, not that we're we're lifting any punches. Uh, you know, targeting uh, issues of corruption and questions where need be, but also providing context and clarity to some situations. So, uh, just I mean, I think for all of us, it's easy to kind of get caught in that that political lens, especially with just yeah. social media and those kind of things. But uh, um, Definitely. It's also important to kind of take time to actually re- read the articles. So speaking of articles, uh, you and, um, and and a couple of our other of our colleagues at the Frontier had a had a pretty interesting story this week that came out of a request for records from the Department of Health for purchase orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you would you would asked for information on where the state was was buying personal protective equipment, so PPE, the you know the equipment that frontline health workers are wearing to protect themselves from the virus. Every state is scrambling to get this equipment in hospitals and other places. Yeah. Um, at first, the Department of Health was a little reluctant to give up some of the details of that information. Um, you wrote a story about it. They quickly changed their position. 
Um, so hopefully there was some pressure from, from your story. You got a hold of some of these purchase orders uh, for PPE. What, what did you find? Yeah. So after I, you know, got those company names, I think there was about 40 suppliers the state was trying to do business with. Um, and just for a little background. So those records uh, that I requested, I got them on Wednesday afternoon, pretty late in the afternoon. Uh, they showed the state approved around $80 million for purchases for protective equipment and um, testing supplies and um, some other materials. But just because the state issued a purchase order doesn't mean the order was completed. So about half of those ended up being canceled because many times the vendor couldn't get the supplies to the state by the promised date. And I think, you know, looking through all of those records that also came with dozens of emails kind of gave us an inside look of how this process worked, how it was going. And the general feeling I got from it was it was a very fluid situation, um, you know, someone from the state might try to purchase something, put in an order, and then hours later, someone else would have already gotten it. So it was very fast moving. Um, and you could tell it was urgent. And I think the state was desperate for these supplies and to get them to frontline workers. And um, the records, um, you know, like I said, they also came with emails between Gino DeMarco, who has been making purchasing decisions for the state and other health department employees. And yeah, it just really showed that there's a lot of desperation, a lot of frustration. Um, and then, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, Gino DeMarco kind of, I guess, defending his process for getting protective equipment as well. And and Gino, who is the uh, deputy director of tourism at the, mm -hmm. the state agency for tourism recreation, has received a lot of attention in, in recent weeks. He's the the governor's point person for for obtaining PPE. Uh, there was a story a few weeks ago about him getting a finder's fee for a delivery that didn't come through. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he's also gotten some attention because people were like, well, what's the deputy director of tourism doing in this role? Now, his background, I think, probably lends a little bit more credibility to that position, uh, given his experience in the private sector. But yeah, you talk about him defending some of these decisions. You know, Gino and the Department of Health have kind of come under fire. I mean, the AG has requested an audit, and this is an agency that has kind of a, a, a recent checkered history. Yeah. So, like you said, it was April 28th, and this came pretty shortly after, you know, the Oklahoman has done a handful of stories about the purchasing decisions, and along with that finder's fee, the Oklahoman reported in April that the health department was moving forward with a $9.5 million purchase of N95 respirators uh, from a company that was under investigation by the FBI. So Attorney General Mike Hunter um, started that, well, requested that investigative audit following that, and the health department received quite a bit of criticism for some of those decisions. Um, and this story was in uh, on the frontier on Friday evening, but and I'll kind of get into his more of his defending process. He said, you know, that the state was having to accept equipment at increased prices and it was the lesser of two evils in that it would save lives. And he said that if he didn't accept the price increases, the suppliers would sell to someone else. So it seems like it's been a high pressure situation for him and the health department in general. Yeah. 
in some ways you can understand that, right? This is an emergency. Mm -hmm. We are literally under a state of emergency. Some of the protocols that you would normally go through for making purchases from the state that are that are are more thoroughly vetted um, and and more public are mm -hmm. are being put aside because there is a, there is a scramble, and, and we I think we all kind of understand that in some regard. But but this is still state taxpayer dollars, right? Yes. It's still It's still public money. It's still public agencies. And it is, I don't think a state of emergency requires less scrutiny. I would actually mm -hmm. argue that it requires more scrutiny because when some of the, the rules, the normal rules are dropped, um, it, you know, it maybe it can become easy to skirt those rules and, and mm -hmm. sun, sunlight and transparency becomes, becomes even more important. You know, one of the, one of the companies that you reported about, uh, and uh, in terms of the, the state looking for um, PPE equipment, had been investigated for, for drug trafficking, right? Yeah, so it was a Florida company. Um, federal investigators said it was involved in international drug trafficking, and it was among dozens of businesses and individuals the state um, was trying to make equipment purchasing from. But So the company is called WorldJet, Inc., and it's, like I said, it's in Florida. And it's an executive airport and aircraft leasing company owned by former professional race drivers. So that alone was, you know, kind of interesting to us. But uh, the state made several multi-million purchasing orders with that company. Some of them were canceled. Uh, but, you know, some of them did ultimately go through. Uh, the health department said they knew about this, the allegations and that they had certain safeguards in place to protect themselves from anything that might go wrong. Um, but yeah, so the FBI thought they were involved in this drug trafficking. They never were convicted for it, but in 1986, they did plead guilty to filing false tax returns in connection with that um, smuggling operation. Yeah. So it's it was an interesting... Um, interesting story you know we've seen some of these companies that the state's doing business with or has attempted to do business with are as you just mentioned companies that have not traditionally been in the ppe business mm -hmm. um, some companies that were recently started that seem to to be launched to take advantage of this situation um, and once again it, you know it, it's an emergency people are, are going to you know adapt in some ways but they're just you know a, a lot of red flags i think when, when you when you see these kind of uh, you know, businesses pop up and, and you look at their history mm -hmm. or you look that they don't have a history that they recently launched. And, and I wonder, and I want to ask you about this. I, I wonder how much this speaks to the large number of, of kind of corporate leaders that the governor has not just brought in to his cabinet and his circle, but has put in charge of leading the state through this, through this pandemic. Gino DeMarco, a, a formal, former oil and gas executive, uh, Jerome Lothridge, the, mm -hmm. the Secretary of Health and Mental Health, who's obviously playing an important role right now, is is a former oil and gas executive who's, who still owns companies. Um, David Ostro, Secretary of, um, of I, I, I forget the title now, Secretary of Transformation, Digital Transformation, mm -hmm. who is playing a very important role in, in helping the state uh, improve its unemployment filing claim system continues to own his own business uh, that owns uh, dozens of fast food restaurants. Uh, Secretary of Commerce Steve Copeland is the CEO of a bank. Um, on right. one hand, that influences the way they look at this pandemic, right? I mean, they kind of mm -hmm. come from an employer's perspective. Yeah, not. I'm sure 
I'm sure they're looking at it differently than from someone who might, you know, just have a history and working in public service. They might be approaching it with kind of a different business mind. Um, But you're working on a story about this, right? Just kind of the backgrounds of these secretaries. Yeah. And so, yeah. And all these guys I mentioned, a, a large number of individuals that still have a foot in the private sector world. Many of these secretaries are not considered to be technically full-time employees, although many mm-hmm. of them still do receive annual pay of, of some kind. Um, and and on, on one hand, the story is kind of about just what that looks like for, for state government to have so many people at the top or in the governor's circle that still mm-hmm. have a foot in the business world. I mean, unlike the governor who gave up his, his business and put it in a family trust, a lot of these individuals are doing state business and running their own private companies in the same day. And I want to be clear, mm-hmm. Uh, reporting hasn't found any cases that violate state law or or ethical re- regulations, uh, but do do raise some important questions. I mean, the, Gino DeMarco, the deputy secretary of tourism, and his boss Jerry Winchester, who's the director of tourism, um, even while working at tourism last year, engaged in their own private business enterprises and and started a business that had nothing to do with tourism. But I think it just raises the question of how how dedicated can you be to the state if you also have uh, your own private sector demands? Mm -hmm. I also think it may mean that someone like Gino is is a lot more comfortable with doing business with a new start company, given the fact that he started a lot of companies in in his past. It's just a different breed, right? It's a different it's a different circle than I think you and I are used to. So maybe that means we don't understand it quite as much, or maybe it means that we're not quite as comfortable with some of the, I don't know, I, I hesitate to say fat, fast and looseness of, <laughs> of business because I don't yeah. want to necessarily imply wrongdoing, but, uh, uh-huh. but it, it looks like that. And it's just, it's just kind of a different world than your traditional, you know, state government uh, community. Definitely. And, you know, I guess aside from, I know your reporting didn't really find any ethical issues or anything like that, but just from looking at trying to be in that role with the state and some of them are taking on pretty big initiatives, pretty big issues, and then trying to operate, you know, kind of their businesses on the side. Did you get any feeling or did they talk to you? Is that, is that a challenge for them to juggle or are they, are they able to commit fully to either one, I guess? Yeah. And I'll, I'll use uh, David Ostro as an example. He sat down with me for the story. So I was, I was appreciative that he, he talked to me about this and mm-hmm. he said, listen, if anything's suffering, it's my, if it's my private enterprise, yeah. it's my family life. He said, I'm giving everything I have right now to the state of Oklahoma. And he and others around him had said that they saw it as an asset, but the fact that he mm. understood what it's like to run a, a major company and to run restaurants meant that he came to this, he comes to this situation with maybe a level of expertise that a, a career state government official might not have. I mean, it, to, in some sense, that's easy to believe. David Ostro has said that he deals with hundreds of unemployment claims a year from his own employees. Hmm. Uh, and most of the time he challenges them and wins them because it's an employee that was let go for cause or left and, and they don't believe that they're entitled to the unemployment. And so he kind of knows what that system looks like. But then on the other hand, he's coming at it from the perspective of an employer. Right. And yeah. I think sometimes when we look at unemployment and the system, it, it can feel like a battle between the working class and, and the business owners. And mm-hmm. I know that he and also Secretary Copeland have raised concerns that there is a high level of fraud being committed. Um, 
they've raised concerns that employees are going to want to just collect unemployment and not come back. But that's the perspective that someone would have, say, as the CEO of a bank that would be different right. than, say, the person working as a bank teller, right? I mean, it's just different class systems. And I think that influences the way that you, uh, the way that you manage a project or manage a state agency or a state initiative. Mm -hmm. And the guys at the top, and they almost all are guys, are, are coming from that kind of corporate world. And, and so I, I definitely think that influences and intents the way that they, they look at some of these issues. No, definitely. And I, I could see why I'm not saying whether I agree, you know, with their views on employees, but I, I, I could see why having that perspective in government would be helpful. Um, and, you know, like I say, I hope that's not the only perspective they're relying on to make decisions, but it, it is an interesting perspective as far as making decisions um, for unemployment and other issues like that. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I think the story, which we'll, we'll publish on Monday, is, you know, asks a fundamental question of, of how, how do you respond to the demands of your private business when there's also increased demands at the state? And hey, this is a, a new situation for us all. And, mm -hmm. and, and so on, on some level, it's, it's easy to understand that we're not always going to be perfect in our response. But like I said, I think in, in times of crisis and emergency, um, sometimes asking these questions become, become even more important. Yeah, definitely. Um, so is that story going to be on the website tomorrow, tomorrow. Monday? So yep, story, uh, podcast drops Monday. So as you're listening to this, it, it should it should already already be up there. Great. Well, that sounds interesting. So Cassie, uh, as as we wrap up, uh, any, anything else of, of note or interest for you? Are you looking at this week? Any stories you're working on, or anything you wanna you wanna reveal at this point? It's okay to say. Yeah. That. No, it's okay. So I'm um, you know looking at a handful of things, but some things I don't mind talking about is I do kind of want to put a piece out there because I haven't really seen one just explaining it to readers, just where new cases are coming from, you know, whether, you know, what hotspots, where they're not coming from, kind of what the demographics look like as far as hospitalizations and deaths go, um, you know, how old people were, their race and ethnicity, their age. I think that's all, you know, important stuff that doesn't, you know, it's not like a huge groundbreaking story, but I, I do think it's things people want to know about. Yeah. And I think it's important. I think it helps us better understand our response to this and, and where we might be dropping the ball and what communities and, and, and people and individuals might be being hit harder, hardest by this. Well, Hey, uh, yeah. Cassie, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for your, for your work. Uh, some, some great stuff that you continue to put out and appreciate you taking some time to talk, talk about it with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So, you have a good one. Thanks, Cass. You too. Bye. Bye. That's going to do it for this week's episode. You can subscribe to the Listen Frontier podcast feed to get every episode of COVID-19 in Oklahoma when it's published on Mondays. You'll also get each week's episode of Listen Frontier, which drops on Friday and includes a closer look at a variety of stories we're working on here at the Frontier. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week.